April 1975. A series of political murders has rocked Italy as all-out war is declared between the extra-parliamentary right and left. People are taking sides, with idealistic youth flocking to the emergent area of autonomia, along with hardened militants trained in the years of bombings and violent street fights of the previous years. One of these vibrant youths is a 25-year-old from Lombardo who embraces autonomia. The son of a wealthy engineer, Carlo Saronio is what you would call an autonomia sympathizer. He's pretty deeply involved, but nowhere near as serious as the other folks that he hangs out with. And you know what? Some of these guys aren't the most savory characters. So late in the evening of April 14, 1975, Saronio is at a meeting of the Socorso Rosso in Largo Quinto Alpini, a beautiful boulevard in Milan's central city close to the magnificent Piazza Sempione. Namely, he's at the home of a middle-aged professor from the Catholic University of Milan, Carlo Borromeo. The Socorso Rosso is just a group to support political prisoners in Italy and abroad. They do sit-ins, hold protests, coordinate resources, etc. In fact, one of its key members is a famous actress named Franca Rame. But this is a secret meeting with a number of extra-parliamentary figures, and it looks like Seronio is actually on his way to leaving the milieu. He has a wife who's one month pregnant. Maybe he's going to clean up his act. So Seronio participates in this meeting, but after the meeting closes out and he's on his way home, he's stopped by a car full of carabinieri officers. Or so it would seem. The men with carabinieri cards grab Saronio and throw him into the car, shoving a rag doused in the chemical toluene over his mouth and nose. The last thing he smells before going into convulsions is that sharp odor of paint thinner as the car speeds away. The kidnapping of Carlo Saronio was not necessarily massive news at first. Although, as the tragic events unfolded, it would grow into one of the most widely known and controversial phenomenon in the years of lead. Hi everybody, welcome to the Years of Lead pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and thank you so much for joining. Shout out to new folks who just heard about this pod from The Atlantic. If you're wondering what's up with the chronology of the pod, it's basically in chronological order. There is some mixing up that happens just on a thematic basis, but you can pretty much start from episode one and go forward from there. Otherwise, I try to make it pretty accessible. Each episode, you can find something that you think is interesting, and each individual episode should have some context in there that'll help you get your bearings and reference other episodes that you can go back to so that you can get further background all right, and now on with the episode about Carlo Saronio. So Carlo Saronio came from an industrialist family that owned the Carlo Erba Pharmaceutical Company, which had big factories around Milan. The family factories had performed loyally under the fascist regime, manufacturing arms and chemicals and contributing large amounts of pollution along the way. The elder, Pietro Saronio, even took a photo op with Mussolini. Born around 1950, Carlo Soronio was very different from that older generation. 
He was filled with the hopeful ideas about the transformation of the political world towards peace and love, and he started working with Catholic social groups in Cuarto Ogiaro, teaching poor folks how to read and write. That's when he started to link up with extra-parliamentary groups, in particular Potero Parayo, and he committed much of his family's money to the cause. He seems to have been a really friendly guy, always willing to support his comrades and brave when it came to direct actions. He wore glasses and a mop of long hair that he combed back away from his thin but bright-looking face. Joining in with the extra-parliamentary left in the early 1970s, Saronio met Tony Negri at a conference in September 1973, and the two would meet a few times over the next couple of years. When he traveled to New York City, Saronio met with the adherents of the Zero Work Group tied to Autonomia, and there he would do political work with Paolo Carpignano for several months. But when Saronio comes back to Italy, he falls into the circles of a man called Carlo Fioroni, nicknamed Il Professorino. A gaunt man with high cheekbones and long bony fingers, Fioroni left a kind of menacing impression. Which is interesting, because for his day job, I've seen reports that he taught middle school or college. But he was also well known to police as a militant of the extra-parliamentary left. In particular, his name is on the insurance of the van that had been used by Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli in his own ill-fated efforts to blow up an electricity pylon in the outskirts of Milan. The connection with the van could include Fioroni in on the fact that this sort of activity always had big risks. But Fioroni is very headstrong, and it would appear deeply involved in the underworld of Milan's revolutionary left, from the defunct neopartisan group The Gap to the burgeoning area of Autonomia. He had even met with Renato Curcio of the Red Brigades during the early 70s, adding to his self-made mythos as a revolutionary guerrilla. According to Fioroni, when he was hiding out during the trial of some leftists in 1974, Saronio allowed him to stay in his own apartment on Corso Venezia, offering his own bedroom. Later that year, Saronio brought Fioroni to another safe house allegedly run by a parish priest out in Quarto Ogiaro, picking him up the following day and dropping him off in Switzerland. When conditions improved for Fioroni to return to Italy, guess who picks him up in Lugano? You guessed it, his buddy, the young autonomist, Carlo Saronio. N not everything had been going great for the autonomous milieu when Fioroni was hiding out in Switzerland, and he's brought to a meeting in a Padua villa to talk about the military structure technical problems related to certain expropriation activities, and other events involving fake passports and extraditions. Or, so he would later say. If you will allow me, it's important to delve a bit here in what was changing in the still young area of autonomia, particularly as it pertained to the territory of Milan in 1974. When considering supposed military arrangements of the area of autonomia, we have to keep a lot of things in mind, particularly as it pertains to Milan and the complexity of relations between autonomists in different places from different tendencies. So, in the previous episode on the formation of Autonomia in Milan, I talked about the Gruppo Gramsci formed in Varese and the formation of the journal Rosso, which was meant to be a sort of sounding board for rebellious voices in Italian society, whether they were coming from the factories, the schools, or the neighborhoods. 
And this idea is to provide an intelligent analysis of world conditions in tandem with action items about strikes, occupations, general social issues. And as things progress, Rosso sort of takes on a life of its own, gaining the participation of people across the country in the Assemblea Operaia in Veneto. So as the Veneto folks, many of whom were just leaving the organization Potere Operaio, started to converge with the Rosso group, the group of Gramsci declares that it's dissolving into a new organization calling itself the Collettivi Politici Operai, or the Political Workers Collectives, I'll just call them CPO. So this group, the Political Workers Collectives, the CPO, is going to help produce Rosso in the vein of its own sort of nascent social movement. It's going to coordinate direct actions, publish report backs, and open up new forums for discussion on the issues of the day, including gay liberation and feminism. So going into 1975, Rosso has garnered the collaboration not only of the folks in Veneto, but also the people working out of the Via de Volsci in Rome, bringing together three of the most creative operations in the burgeoning area of autonomia. So in 1974, the CPO is fast becoming a big deal in Italian political life, not least of all in the counterculture. And this is what the young Seronio was no doubt attracted to. They had an anti-authoritarian approach, a frenetic style of including so many dissenting voices, sometimes contradicting one another. They seemed wild and free, which is part of Negri's growing intellectual relationship with the post-structuralist movement, the ideas of schizoanalysis coming out of the work of Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari, and the notions of biopower coming from Michel Foucault. Through all of this, Negri supported the philosophical intervention of Baruch Spinoza, whose works he argued supported a resistance comprised of many different forms of resistance. I'll try to get more into the philosophy in another episode. Negri later wrote, quote, This urge to confront life and to break and reinvent traditions was picked up by Rosso. Lenin didn't like Frank Zappa. Was it a distancing from Lenin? When you went to see what these kids really didn't like, you discovered that under attack were the conformism of the official labor movement, the bigoted behavior in the family and at school. That slogan, that paradox, was needed to break down the doors of Vigorelli, where there were these great jazz and pop concerts, and to beat the Servizio de Ordine that the Milanese fascists sold to the concert managers. This last part is in reference to the Milanese street gangs dispersed through the workers' districts, young kids who would break into the rock and roll shows they couldn't afford to attend and start riots when they got arrested or if the bouncers tried to beat them up. Rosso, which adopted a masthead with the name scrawled in a kind of graffiti style, celebrated that kind of explosion of class conflict in the social and cultural arena. But... Some people who'd been with the Grupo Gramsci didn't necessarily agree with Negri's Spinozaist approach. Carlo Formenti noted that, quote, once created, there was inevitably a transversal attraction between the various separate organisms, rapidly leading to the separation of this level from that of class autonomy and from political direction by the movement. So I think what Formenti's complaining about here is that activists got a little bit swept away with these theories of interlinked struggles and started to rely on subcultures, leaving the subjective collectivity that workers' autonomy had once assumed behind it. Where was the space for the mass worker in housing occupations by squatters happening at the time? 
That said, Negri argued that what the CPO was doing was evolving within the subjectivity of massification caused by the crisis of capitalist accumulation. So let me break that down real quick. As capital increasingly accumulated and centralized into the hands of the few, wages stagnated and the working class's subjectivity sort of expanded into a much wider autonomous milieu. In effect, the old mass worker is becoming a socialized worker whose labor is increasingly exploited in the social field rather than in the factory. The worker's life was becoming a commodity. And in today's era of social media, where we are providing free services to social media corporations, this analysis seems quite prescient. But it's also where the analysis of workerism in general faced a major crossroads. That school of thought, created by socialists and Marxists in the late 1950s, sought to provide an alternative to the Communist Party, seeing it as totally out of touch with the common worker. And even if they were right, the Communist Party had its own cultural milieu. It offered workers pageantry, community, a real feeling of belonging, and workerism didn't have that at all. But the Communist Party's own cultural productions were really diminishing into the 1960s, after Togliatti, their conservative leader, had died, and his replacement, Luigi Longo, was seen as just a temporary substitute. The real leader going into the 1970s was Enrico Berlinguer, who was part of the younger generation, kind of a liberalizer, not necessarily interested in party life as a totalitarian presence. So, party life is starting to erode for the Communist Party and give way to youth culture, and the workerists at Rosso found this incredibly fruitful. Marcos Cavino, who was a member of Potere Operaio, writes in his article, La piazza e la forza, i percorsi verso la lotta armata del 68 alla meta degli anni 70, in the book Verso la lotta armata, describes the influence of Rosso in the following terms. The experience of Rosso, giornale dentro il movimento, bore a remarkable development in those years, skillfully mounting the discourse of autonomy in a way, in truth, which did not entirely coincide with the other versions like the Roman one. A discourse that was born from the analysis of the crisis and its consequences on the class position, as well as from a profoundly innovative rethinking of workerist theories, which led that group, well in advance of other sectors of the movement, to carefully consider subjects other than the traditional working class, starting with the youth and women's movements. Interestingly enough, while the movement towards youth culture was very exciting for a lot of the workerist intellectuals, it left other sections of the autonomia feeling put out. The Volsci in Rome left the Collettivi Politici Operai precisely over these questions, especially of the youth, because their own members with NL or the teaching hospital could be middle-aged or older, and weren't interested at all in young hoodlums, as it were. Plus, there are stories of the dudes from the Volsci actively tearing out the section of Rosso dedicated to gay liberation before distributing the journal. But that's, that's sort of their issue. On Rosso in Milan, Marcos Gavino continues, quote, What they wanted to realize in the final analysis was an organization as fluid as possible, which could really move inside the movement, 
feeding many autonomous moments of struggle, able to represent the principle of class autonomy on different fronts, without necessarily having to equip itself with centralized structures or specific management bodies. Hence, for example, a custom and a style that the various collectives consider irrenounceable, where the command over the project is always exercised collectively in such forms that the meetings of the secretariats themselves, which also formally existed, became a sort of general assembly of the group, turning on some occasions, for the duration and breadth of topics covered, into something resembling a mini-congress. But the development of the CPO wasn't at all something like the old Grupo Gramsci folks were really prepared for. Quote, when the Grupo Gramsci actually was disbanded in the fall of 1973, scholar Giovanni Arrighi later noted in conversation with geographer David Harvey, Negri came into the picture and took the CPO and the area of autonomia in an adventurous direction that was far from what was originally intended. Now, when Arrighi says adventurous, it's not difficult to parse what he's referencing. And it's not just these young kids occupying social centers and clinics in the workers' districts. In particular, the CPO created a covert section that would engage in militant activities for which the collectives could not be held responsible. A lot of this covert section was sort of inherited from the illegal work part of Potero Brayo. Scavino explains, quote, that the organization of violence and a certain way of tending towards armed struggle was an integral part of Rosso is beyond doubt. The Milanese group, among other things, had inherited what remained at the local level, in truth not much, one would say, of illegal work, of potero Barrio. And in that context, between 1975 and 1976, it is plausible to believe that many collectives and autonomous bodies equipped themselves with weapons, which also included firearms. A phenomenon that, at the time, moreover, it seemed to concern a bit of the formations operating in the area of the movement. In the cold open of the previous episode on the CPO, I already described the first two important actions in which Rosso members participated. Tony Negri describes the action at face standard like this, quote, On Sunday, 6th of October, 1974, a group of militants entered an ITT factory in Fitonasco, near Milan, and set fire to its huge warehouse. The TV spectacle made an impression. The communique for the action recalls the responsibility of ITT, an American multinational in the Chilean coup d'etat, and bears the claim, never again without a rifle. It was not a terrorist act, the guardians had been kindly packed up and had witnessed the action unharmed, but sabotage. The rifle did not represent, nor did it pretend to, armed struggle. It was the prosthesis of a worker's struggle in action. Wealth of the class enemy had been destroyed, but this action prevented restructuring, the possibility for the company to continue selling and making profit while the factory was stranded by the crisis. The bosses fired or suspended workers and at the same time imposed overtime. This is what they wanted to fight. Mind you... Face was an engineering factory. Sabotage was illustrated by this new working-class intelligence. Rosso takes the workers' claims to this level. As it happens, none other than the bright-eyed and bushy-tailed Carlos Saronio had likely been involved in the October 1974 action at Face Standard, according to some accounts. 
This had been carried out shortly before he helped Ferry Fioroni out to Switzerland and back. And these kinds of things made Saronio a known quantity among the underground of the extra-parliamentary left. News of the ensuing proletarian shopping actions carried out by other members of Autonomia at the supermarkets in Cuarto Ogiaro and Viale Padova spread far and wide a month later. They had been coordinated with the Italian Communist Party Marxist-Leninist after Lotto Continua and Avanguardia Operaia refused those advances, and a few people did get arrested because they didn't run fast enough. Regardless, these actions became a new format for the dispersal of such tactics around the country, starting in Rome, with the Ivolsi group in early February of 1975. For Rosso, arms struggle meant autonomous diffusion of arms through collective efforts untethered to mass activity like strikes. In other words, the autonomous could carry out armed activities outside of the need for real worker struggle, thus making armed struggle its own autonomous mass movement. Or at least that's what critics thought. Scavino adds a little nuance to that. Quote, What characterized the experience of Rosso, however, was precisely the attempt to devolve the armed struggle in absolutely particular forms, which made it not a project of organization distinct and separate from the movement, but a real mass practice, at least in trend, completely internal to collectives and closely connected with mass political work a practice that did not necessarily have to pass through striking and particularly violent actions. So, it's worth noting some key distinctions here. For the Red Brigades, the masses weren't ready for armed struggle. It had to be carried out by committed and highly organized cadres of vanguards who moved within the everyday life of the neighborhoods and were embedded in the factories, but secret. After the big busts of 1972, they had to go totally underground, so their model adapted to a form of clandestine life in which the brigadists would live totally isolated from everyday life as the vanguard of the workers, always acting in their interests to deepen the crisis within the capitalist state. The militants tied to Senza Tregua, on the other hand, in Milan and Rome especially, but also Florence and other cities, didn't necessarily accept the idea of armed struggle as existing solely within the organized cadre of vanguards closely kept within a single hierarchical organization. Instead, they saw themselves as bringing the rifle into the factory, attempting to build an autonomous armed struggle through small grouplets that could emerge and dissolve by the whims of their creators, often with similar tactics to the Red Brigades, but strategically united by common ideas rather than singular organizational structures. For the Volsci, on the other hand, in Rome, the armed struggle would simply have to wait. It would ultimately be necessary, but Italian political life was not ready for the level of active engagement necessary to put forward some kind of protracted civil war from the masses. Here... The CPO in Milan differed from both Volsci in Rome and the Senza Tregua people. Rather than giving up on the idea of armed struggle or trying to set up some secret armed nuclei within the factories and neighborhoods, they seemed to have hoped to spread the armed struggle on a more granular level, building it up as a kind of mass-based practice. Always at play here was the notion of the armed party, or what Lenin called the combat party. 
This is sort of grandfathered in from the days of partisan struggle in the resistance, which was obviously still in the memory of the Communist Party rank and file, many of whom remained insurrectionaries hoping for the revolution. And the idea here is to form a party from the ground up that would be armed and have combat readiness in order to overthrow capitalism. Whereas the original Putero Prayo group had hoped to build such a party based on Leninist terms, they had an armed division and it was all really small. The CPO, many of whose organizers came in from Potero Prayo experience, hoped to avoid the problem of building another insular and irrelevant left-wing party by avoiding bureaucratization while nevertheless building a mass base that would function sort of like a party without infrastructure. But the thing the Italian extra-parliamentary left would soon find out about armed struggle and carrying guns into actions is that if there's a struggle, you're in a position of having to use the gun. And beyond this, and the complications that it involves in the moment, actions can go horribly wrong, even when they're carefully planned. There was also some question about the compartmentalization of the groups planning and carrying out the activities of the CPO, which was apparently never adequately addressed internally. So, on December 5th, 1974, Autonomia militants attempt to rob a bank in Argelato, an area around Bologna. The Carabinieri showed up, and the robbers were able to lose their pursuers in a high-speed chase down a country road. When they tried to drive back to Modena, where they're based, a couple of carabinieri stopped their car, thinking they were out camping or something. A carabinieri officer, Andrea Lombardini, approached. The paranoid bank robbers shot and killed him, shooting and injuring the second officer, Gennaro Chiaretta. The group had allegedly tried to finish Chiaretta off, but the gun jammed, according to a later judicial reconstruction, and they sped off. Among the culprits later arrested were four militants within the area of the CPO in Milan, who had come out of the illegal work formation tied to Potero Barrio. This was, in fact, the subject of the meeting at which Fioroni later claimed to be present at the Padua Villa, discussing the problems related to Autonomia's militancy. Fioroni insisted that at the meeting were Tony Negri and the supposed military commander of the Collettivi Politici Operai, Egido Monferdin. They allegedly agreed to create a nerve center to coordinate illegal activities out of the group in Milan, rather than allowing the youth to run rampant in self-financing operations. Fioroni then told the group he wanted to move to Paris and link up with the militants there. Everyone agreed that would work well. Or so Fioroni says. Almost exactly two weeks later, after the Argelato failed robbery, a militant named Carlo Casirati attempted with a comrade to kidnap an industrialist named Giuseppe Duina in Redecesio di Segrate, a suburb in the eastern part of the Milan metro area. So what they did was they stole a Fiat 125 and a BMW, followed Duina out of the Tamil building where his company Elsit was located, and tracked him until the opportune place to stop his car. The BMW screeches in front of Duina's Alpha 2000 coupe while the Fiat swings around to its flank to prevent escape. However, Duina does like some James Bond move and is somehow able to maneuver and escape the kidnappers. 
who had prepared some chemicals to knock him out as they took him to their base. Now, one thing that the attempted kidnapping of Duina did show was that kidnapping itself was becoming more prevalent as a tactic of the left. This was not just the result of the Red Brigades having kidnapped some five people in high-profile actions leading up to the Sosi operation. Instead, it was actually a general drift in Italian criminal activity, which included, in particular, the Mafia. Or should I say the Mafias? That's right. The Mafia was growing rapidly in the conditions of economic distress. There were smaller groups emerging, like the Maliana Gang, which I'll get into in a future episode. But the Andrangheta were making serious moves down in Calabria, and the new Camorra was on the rise in Napoli. These syndicates did kidnappings all over Italy as the 1970s progressed, and like the kneecappings becoming more prominent as a left-wing tactic, kidnappings are growing in popularity as well. And with the attempted kidnapping of Duina, another element is added to the mix. Casirati and his accomplice were going to use a chemical solution on the executive in order to render him unconscious. This is pretty dangerous, way more dangerous than they understood, because excessive use of knockout chemicals can really kill people. With this, a kind of taboo within the ambit of the Collettivi Politici Operai had been broken. The milieu is hurting for cash, they wanted to keep raising money for the Rosso Journal, and they needed to pay for assemblies and other efforts. Where could they go for money? According to a later confession by one of the culprits, one day, in a very ironic tone, autonomist Silvana Marelli proposed an idea. Maybe Carlos Saronio could kidnap himself. His family would pay out to the movement. He'd be able to escape, no problem. Others around her thought this was crazy, sort of shrugged off, but Marelli brought up the idea again to Carlo Casirati, the would-be kidnapper of Duina. Now the idea started to get traction. The idea is bandied around, allegedly to an associate of Negri's, as well as Fioroni, and some stipulations were added. For instance, Fioroni, who had known Saronio, who had stayed at Saronio's house while he was laying low, who Saronio took to Switzerland and back while he was in flight, that Fioroni would ask Saronio in advance to simulate the kidnapping and move forward with the ransom. Apparently, according to Reconstructions, Saronio really was asked, but he refused. It might have struck him a bit hard, too, that his cohort wanted to exploit his family like this after he put himself in danger for the movement. And now Fioroni and Casirati were even more committed this rich kid, Carlo Saronio, had the temerity to refuse to be kidnapped. So, they just carry it out for real. Supposedly, this wasn't exactly a secret within the organization, and many of the public representatives thought it would be a terrible idea. Yet, Casirati wanted to move forward. Fioroni later claimed that Egiro Monferdin, one of the CPO's leaders, reached out to him to set up a meeting with Casirati in which the fateful act was set up. Quote, Casirati told me that the top of the organization had decided for funding purposes the kidnapping of Carlos Saronio, which would be carried out by people he directed. He also told me that the organization would be entitled to 10% of the ransom, which would be requested at a rate of $5 billion. He also told me that I had to stay available to provide the necessary information. 
He pointed out to me that outside the kidnapping had to appear to be carried out by the mafia, and he assured me and guaranteed me that no hair on Zeronio's head would be harmed. Now, let me interject here by saying it's difficult to imagine the openness with which the kidnapping was being plotted out in accordance with Fioroni's claims. First, it makes Fioroni look like an unwitting accomplice to Casirati's leadership, which is hard to swallow. Second, it implicates a lot of people by proxy. Negri's associates as this, yada yada. And that doesn't really hold up in U.S. court, where you're innocent until proven guilty. And lastly, Testimonies of those involved say that Casirati always launched into his plans with an ironic air around him, like he was telling a joke, and he would often insist he was just kidding if the other interlocutors seemed to be reluctant or to be put off. So it's difficult to implicate others in a conspiracy if they are not sure whether you're joking or trolling or what. As well, it appears Casirati was finally approached about not doing the action, actually, but he responded that he was in communication with the leadership of Autonomia and that it would go through regardless. So here we have to wonder, because either Autonomia is a group that had a clear leadership that made hierarchical organizations on actions carried out by militants, or it was a horizontal structure in which people would carry out activities on their own. Casirati appears to have believed it was the former, a hierarchical group, according to Fioroni's claims and his own. And it's feasible that he just had a completely wrong understanding of the group's framework. That said, the most likely case is that investigators are really looking for someone to develop this hierarchical framework for them, whether or not it was real, because Autonomia was causing them a real headache, and they wanted to bring down influencers. Fioroni would later state, quote, I and perhaps not just me, had unfortunately accepted this project and felt all the monstrous responsibility for it. I found myself inserted in an infernal circle of political criminal organization in which we all ended up identifying ourselves and even, with, even when the gravity of certain situations was felt with an aspiration to escape from the circle. Implementation was not easy. In fact, to the political criminal bond were added bonds of a completely personal nature and friendship between comrades in the context of completely private and personal relationships, so it was laborious, difficult, lacerating to break away from the organization, that is, to get out of the circle without compromising and disturbing personal and friendship relations. After a fair amount of research, Casirati decided on the fateful day. The April 14th Socorso Rosso meeting at Professor Mauro Borromeo's apartment. It looked like Carlos Saronio was maybe going straight. He wanted to settle down, wanted to get out of the group, maybe even moving to the United States, and they had to act soon. They paid a few hoods to steal an alfetta in Milan in March, replacing the plates and forging some fake carabinieri cards to make Saronio think it was some kind of arrest. After that, Fioroni took the unsuspecting Saronio to a bar where Casarati was waiting to see the victim firsthand. Everything was organized with a band from the criminal element of Milan and from the political milieu, some of Saronio's erstwhile comrades. They even adopted a name for the action, Fronte Armato Revolucionario Operaio, 
the Armed Revolutionary Workers' Front. Finally, the Socorso Rosso meeting was to take place, with several activists meeting in Borromeo's apartment until past midnight, talking in particular about the condition of a political prisoner named Francesco Tomei. According to Casirati's reconstruction, he was waiting in a mini near the, ha- near the apartment as the meeting broke up. The other accomplices approached the group, showing them false carabinieri cards and demanding documents. They stopped Soronio in particular, who was already on his way back to his lancia, and took him away to the stolen Alfetta. Without warning, they shove him in the car and speed off toward their so-called prison in Garbagnate, where two jailers awaited him, followed, of course, by Casirati in his mini. This reconstruction is slightly contradicted by that of Marelli, who was at the meeting with her friend Bruna Talia Galopo. According to her, they asked for a ride from Soronio, but there was this suspicious-looking Alfetta right in front of the car with weird guys sitting inside, so they took down the license plate, and he dropped them off at their house, but had to go back to his own house and might have been kidnapped either there or on the way there. What is apparently true is that the women did take down the Alfetta's license plate. The contours of the operation itself are sloppy at best and seem to have been inspired by the kidnapping of Mario Sosi. The kidnappers, however, were very visible and apparently either lurked outside of a meeting and approached all the political prisoner activists coming out with fake carabinieri cards, or they followed Saronio's car to the women's house afterwards in very awkward and visible fashion. After this, they came back and took Saronio's lancia and dropped it off where he used to park in front of his apartment in Corso Venestia, thinking nobody would notice. Or they waited for him to drive back to his apartment, and then they kidnapped him. It seems clear that they didn't actually want to kill him, but they used that rag doused in toluene to render him unconscious. Now, toluene is an industrial solvent that smells like paint thinner, and it gets you really high if you huff it. It's actually illegal in a lot of places these days because like anything that people huff, it kills mega brain cells and can destroy people's brains very easily. When first administered, it makes people go into a kind of narcosis, followed by an intense agitation, including tremors, cramping, and disturbing behaviors. So what the Milan judges ultimately determined was that those administering it probably didn't know what to expect. And when Saronio started to act like he's having some kind of seizure, they simply kept administering the toluene to get him to go to sleep. Saronio was also sick at the time, which couldn't have helped. And within minutes of being kidnapped, Saronio had inhaled a lethal dose of toluene and went into the painful throes of an agonizing death. His captors told Casirati what had happened, and Casirati rushed to a night pharmacy to try to get cardiac medicine and revive the youth, but to no avail. He died that night. They decided to drive the car with the corpse sitting in it near the Falk plant and to continue along with the plan. They called the Saronio family at 7.30 a.m. the next morning, demanding 5 billion lira for his safe return. That night, 
they drove the corpse of Saronio to Segrate in the outskirts of Milan and buried him there, in a dry canal, not far from where Feltrinelli had met his own fate. Indeed, the two devastating mishaps of the Feltrinelli death and the kidnapping of Carlo Saronio seem almost symmetrical, as they both included the operations of part of the criminal element of Milan, along with left-wing revolutionaries, and they both ended so tragically. The last step was to get rid of the car, and they did, torching the alfete they had used. After they realized that the kidnapping had taken place, Talia Galapo and Marelli sent the license plate details to the Saronio family anonymously, not wanting to get too involved. But the professor, Borromeo, did not come forward to tell investigators where Saronio had been. He later confided in an associate, in her words, quote, that he hadn't felt like reporting to the investigators the fact that Saronio had been at his house on the evening of the kidnapping and that the others had convinced him not to inform the police of this with a series of arguments. They wanted to prevent the Saronio family from knowing the political position of Carlo. Cagnoni was the wife of Tomei, a political prisoner, and this could give rise to suspicions. In any case, Marelli and the blonde, having left the house, had taken the license plate number of the suspect car and had sent those details to the Saronio family in an anonymous letter. According to Bianca Radino, after the kidnapping was in the press, Negri set up an inquiry commission to get to the bottom of this case, along with Marelli, Egito Monferdin, and Fironi. Now, this must have been quite awkward, given that Fioroni was certainly one of the kidnapping plotters, and he claimed that Monferdin had given the okay, and that the plan was originally conceived by Marelli, supposedly. Of course, Marelli would later say she did not make up the plan, and in fact helped send the license plate number of the Alfetta to the family of Saronio in that anonymous letter. For his part, Negri would say that, after being summoned by a round of phone calls, quote, We met with Marelli, Fioroni, Pilenja, in a bar on the ramparts next to Smeraldo Cinema. Why these people, who later identified as a commission? Because they were the people closest personally to Saronio, who knew him and had summoned themselves to see what could be done. There was never a commission. It was I was summoned together with the others in this spontaneous convocation. Negri immediately thought that Casirati should be asked about the action since he was part of the underworld. So you see what's happening here. Immediately after the kidnapping, Fioroni, who was involved in the kidnapping, becomes part of an internal convocation, a meeting of sorts, between a number of different people including Antonio Negri, hoping to get to the bottom of what happened to Saronio. Here, even if one accepts Fioroni's story that Casirati was the mastermind acting on the advice of Marelli and with the go-ahead of Monferdin, it's kind of easy to imagine that Negri was completely oblivious. At the same time, reports suggest that Marelli was completely panicked the day after the kidnapping, 
and Casirati's reconstruction of the event leaves out following the lancia driven by Seronio back to Morelli's house to drop the ladies off. So there's this big hole in Casirati's story where it totally doesn't line up with Morelli's story, and this could indicate that Morelli wasn't actually involved and instead had sent the license plate number to the family hoping to save Saronio's life. Anyway, Negri says that the ad hoc commission met a few more times and discussed whether it had been a provocation carried out by the police maybe, or maybe a far-right action. And at the same time, it's incredible to think that Fioroni knew everything about the kidnapping, but tagged along in some of these meetings and even named his collaborator, Casirati, who he knew was involved, as somebody who could offer information due to his proximity to the underworld. At the same time, Fironi seems not to have known that his comrade Saronio was dead. In fact, he told some of the kidnappers that he needed to speak with him after the affair was over. Meanwhile, Monferdin claimed he was not particularly interested in the case at all, didn't really want to look into it. Quote, an attempt was made to convince Casirati to investigate the fate of Carlos Saronio in the underworld, Monferdin recalled. Quote, Casirati, giving himself the great airs of an exponent of the underworld, said that the request was unthinkable since the simple fact of going around to make these investigations was dangerous and risky for the kidnapped person himself. As well, Marelli heard that the parish priest might know something about the case. According to the priest, though, quote, In the confessional, a person came to me who spoke in a female voice who asked me for some news of Carlos Saronio, in the sense that she wanted to know from me if I knew anything useful, but I didn't see the person's face and I couldn't tell who it was. That woman limited herself to asking me about the kidnapping of Carlos Saronio. I said I knew nothing, and that was all. This actually conflicted with later testimony by Marelli that reflected that the priest thought that the boy was fine and the family was negotiating. And yet, the supposed commission launched by the CPO members could not help but assess that maybe Casirati was behind all of this and that Fioroni was helping him. At the same time, police were making the same notions. Casirati panicked. He goes to Monferdin in Padua. Casirati insists that he was being investigated and insinuated that there would be repercussions, throwing some keys onto the table and saying, carry out the searches if you want. He said, I will make a slaughterhouse. Now, Nagri will always maintain that Monferdin had nothing to do with this whole operation, saying that Monferdin wasn't involved in any kind of Milanese syndicate, that he wasn't any kind of go-between for any leadership, and that, in fact, there was no leadership at all. Regardless, on May 4th, there's an attempt to drop off some cash. A quarry at Cernusco sul Navilio. But the kidnappers saw a Giulia car that they marked as police, and they fled immediately. Five days later, on May 9th, the family was able to get across 470 million lira as an advance, not knowing that their child Carlo was already dead. According to one accomplice, a briefcase containing 67 million lira passed to Fioroni 
through an accomplice named Alice Carobio on May 12th, which was destined half for the Italian organization and the other half for the French network that he wanted to set up. Casirati, on the other hand, says that he gave Fioroni $235 million to be divided between sections. At any rate, it appears that Fioroni left with his accomplice Franco Prampolini to Switzerland, having drilled a hole in the gas cylinder of the Fiat 127 they had to hide the cash. They're going to launder the money from there. But, not smart guys, the bills had been marked, of course, and Fioroni was popped with Prampolini and their accomplice Katzaniga in Switzerland the next month while trying to launder the ransom. Fioroni would later be convicted of the kidnapping murder, getting a heavy sentence, and then he confesses that it's carried out, again, with Casirati and a few more individuals, but not without the approval of Egido Monferdin and Gianfranco Pancino, one of the former Potere Operaio members close to Negri. Of course, Fioroni would tell a lot of stories, sometimes with apparently no reason at all. For instance, after the brutal execution of Lotto Continua activist Alceste Campanile in June of 1975, Fioroni indicated that the responsible party had been other members of the extra-parliamentary left, and added that Campanile was one of those who helped drill the hole in the car for the ransom money. This was later decisively disproven after the arrest of a fascist who later confessed to the murder. So, Fioroni, as a witness, is pretty discredited. Fioroni's accomplice in the botched kidnapping, Casirati, was captured the following February. The trial just dragged on, as Italian criminal justice proceedings tend to do, and people began to get really worried. Now it was Casirati claiming that he had testimony that would bring the whole court down. It was discovered that he had once been a guest at Tony Negri's house, which drove speculation even further. And it was only in November of 1978 that Casirati finally pointed investigators to the location of Soronio's body. Sufficient to say, by performing as the first so-called pentiti, or former members of the underworld who came clean and confessed his actions about the extra-parliamentary left while implicating others, Fioroni got a light sentence and was actually able to move to France, while those he pointed the finger at languished in preventive detention. Everything Casirati and Fioroni did was under the knowledge that if they presented autonomia as a unified structure with a central command and hierarchical leadership giving orders to the militants, then they would receive lighter sentences. Neither Pantiti had credibility, either as individuals or as witnesses. Nevertheless, Italian courts handed down heavy sentences to a number of activists, including Egido Monferdin and Marali for the kidnapping and murder of Carlo Saronio. When Saronio's nephew, Piero, met up with Fioroni in France years later, he found a man who was hardly penitent. Quote, He kept the mask on all day. I did not find a sincere pain, and I saw a small person. I feel no forgiveness or even pity. Why did Carlo help, protect, and finance? this cellar of smoke. The meeting with Carlo's kidnapper left Piero with a different image of his own uncle. It was a hard and tiring day, 
that helped me take Uncle Carlo down from the pedestal on which I had placed him. I've always thought that he had embraced that need for social change that was the spirit of the time. But I'd like to ask him, Carlo, but what traveling companions did you choose? While this remains an extremely murky territory in terms of accountability, particularly regarding the clandestine armed aspect that no doubt did exist despite these big failures in, the late, in late 1974 and mid-1975, the CPO's journal Rosso maintained what Steve Wright calls an unmatched role in providing a platform for many of the views then developing in and around the autonomous movement. However, just like in June 1973, when it suspended publishing until December, by the middle of 1975, Rosso would again stop printing for a while. Although it resumed shortly after, the run from the end of 1973 to the middle of 1975 represented a kind of era, in a sense bookended by the formation of the CPO on one hand and the death of Soronio on the other. This era would thus be mixed in its outcomes. It expressed new ways of mounting resistance against capital, integrating myriad voices into networked and horizontalist oppositional efforts, while also disenfranchising some of Rosso's originators and engaging in attention-grabbing acts of sabotage that grew into uncontrolled and sometimes disastrous activities. There's no doubt that this period saw the intensification of struggle, from Black Thursday and the Prima Valle fire, to the unraveling of coup plots going into 1974 and the catastrophic terror attacks in Brescia and on the Italicus train that year, finally culminating in the street violence of the brutal and murderous days of April 1975. In fact, when Rosso ended its second series, the so-called days of April had just gone off. Half a dozen militants from left and right were dead, violence was escalating beyond the control of anybody, and the years of lead were just beginning. I'll leave the last words to Marcos Cavino. Quote, At that time, in short, Rosso actually managed to make the movement live, and to some extent to spread, at least in the realities in which the group was most rooted, Milan and Varese, Veneto, Bologna, a way of practicing violence in alternative organized forms. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the Years of Lead Pod. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating at the platform of your choice and sign up at the Patreon where there's lots of bonus episodes, data, and more. As always, I'm your host, Alexander Reed Roth.